whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, and you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow-up questions are allowed. The other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are and what kind of philosophical work you do? Okay, so I'm Tom Baldwin. I'm currently, my, my title is Emeritus Professor of Philosophy at the University of York. And what this basically means is that I retired from a full-time post about seven years ago, but the University of York allows me to dabble in philosophy, both to come to its research seminars and to teach the third-year undergraduates every year. I've had a, a full career in philosophy. I was an undergraduate doing moral sciences, as it was called, in Cambridge uh, in the 1960s. That means philosophy and psychology. I then did a PhD in Cambridge. And then I went to teach philosophy for a couple of years in Uganda, in Africa. So I taught at Makerere, and I was there during the years that uh, Amin's regime came to power and then drove out the Asians. And I witnessed, in a sense, the collapse of civil society there in a way which uh, has made political philosophy apparent to me more vividly than I think would otherwise have been the case. After that, I came back to the UK and fairly shortly after that, I uh, was lucky to get a job at the University of York. This is in the 1970s. I was happily there for 10 years, and then I was uh, invited to apply for a job at Cambridge, which I was lucky to get, and I had uh, 12 very happy years in Cambridge. And then York invited me to, to return to York as a professor of philosophy, and I was happy to accept the invitation. I actually prefer York to Cambridge as a place to live, and I've lived in York ever since. So... That's the bare bones of my career. As far as my sort of philosophical interests go, I was, as my background at Cambridge indicates, I was sort of trained in fairly straightforward analytical philosophy at Cambridge. And to begin with, I thought of myself as working in philosophy of language and logic. But at a certain point, I was invited to write a book for the Arguments of Philosophers series about G.E. Moore, and that invitation came just at the time that the great bulk of G.E. Moore's papers were deposited in the university library in Cambridge. And suddenly it became possible to think of Moore not, so to speak, as someone just from the published papers, but actually also with all the material that he'd written uh, as a young man, his Apostles' papers, and uh, lots of other material that enabled me to get a much more three-dimensional view of the philosopher than would otherwise have been possible. So I, I, I spent a, a great deal of time working on more, and, and the book came out. But at the same time, I was, of course, teaching across the normal range of philosophical disciplines that you have to do either at York or at Cambridge. 
And since then, I've, I guess I've continued to teach across a wide range of areas. What is perhaps unusual is that I seem to have ended up being a sort of specialist on 20th century philosophers. So as well as more, obviously, Russell and Wittgenstein come across the agenda. And then equally, when I was first appointed at York, I had to promise to teach a course in continental philosophy. And that led me into reading and thinking about the phenomenological tradition. So I, what's therefore a little unusual is that I, I've worked in both areas, published in both areas, and continue to, to write in both areas. So this year earlier, I finished first a paper on Moore and then a paper on Meloponti. Can I ask you a question about the Moore archive and sort of getting access to his unpublished papers? Like, is there something that stands out as sort of particularly surprising or the most unexpected aspect of Moore that you were alerted to then? I think it was the the way in which he worked through a kind of post-Kantian idealist philosophy into a rather extreme naive realism. So one thing that uh, Consuelo and Preti and I, Consuelo's great friend, did recently was we put together the texts of Moore's two fellowship dissertations and from those, you can see the first fellowship dissertation of uh, 1897. He's still a neo-Kantian idealist, but in a way, breaking through it. In 1898, the break occurs. And so you can see the, in a sense, the emergence there of one strand, by no means the only strand, of a kind of analytical realism in British philosophy just at the very end of the 19th century. And it was really fun doing the work on all of that and thus getting a trajectory that enabled me then to push into Moore's early philosophy, early 20th century philosophy, Principia Resca, but also Refutation of Idealism and most of his other papers up to about 1910, 1911, where he puts together this course of lectures in London, published much later, called Some Main Problems of Philosophy. Well, it's great to talk about more. I think it's quite possible that you taught me more when I was an undergraduate. And uh, one of the anecdotes about more that I use in the trailer for this podcast is one where I think Keynes, he describes G.E. Moore waking from a nightmare in which he could not distinguish propositions from tables, which I've always really, uh, I've really yeah, liked. I, I mean, it, it's, it's not exactly a nightmare. I mean, in one or two of his early papers, uh, he expresses his, uh, his great excitement at the thought that there is no difference between the truth of the proposition, you know, the table is brown, and the brown table. So he, he advanced a position, or he, he, he has subscribed to a position which, uh, which I called the identity theory of truth. Right. But it's really actually, flip, for Moore's position, you flip it around the other way, really. It's the identity theory of reality. Reality just is true propositions. Well, it will be fun to talk more about Moore, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask uh, the first official question, which is an Iris Murdoch-inspired question. So it begins with this quote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So would you say your temperament influences your philosophical work? And if so, how? Okay. Um, yes, you sent the question along in, in advance. And the word temperament rather struck me uh, because the term is traditionally used in connection with 
the four temperaments being sanguine, phlegmatic, choleric, and melancholic. Yeah. And then I thought about myself, and it seems to me, you know, I, I certainly I can't place myself distinctively in any one of those. Uh, and I talked about it a bit with my wife, and she said uh, she might have views, but she would keep them to herself. <laughs> yeah. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> um, but if I think about, in a sense, the kind of, I don't know, cast of mind I have, what's characteristic, yeah. is a sort of combination, I think, of curiosity and impatience. So the, the curiosity was sort of activated when, as I said earlier, I was ex told I was expected to teach a course in continental philosophy. So for me, this was unknown territory. I wasn't particularly you know, drawn to it in advance, but then I found lots of interesting things there, and I was, I've been happy to keep pursuing them throughout my career. But equally, I think the impatience comes in, in that I don't like to stick too narrowly to just one thing. So I work on you know, all sorts of themes and points from the history of philosophy, but I'm not, in a sense, to be identified as someone who's you know, a metaphysician or anything like that. I, I just jump around a lot. So I've become a kind of jack of all trades. And I think that that has some distinctive advantages and no doubt many drawbacks. There's this phrase that Wittgenstein uses in the investigations where he says there's one thing that he really seeks for, which is, and now I'm going to use the German phrase, the übersichtliche Darstellung, which is the phrase Anscom translates as a perspicuous representation. But perspicuous isn't quite right because übersicht is oversight. Yeah. So it's, it's a representation that gives a sort of broad oversight. And I think my kind of jumping around, particularly with the history of philosophy in France and Germany and in England, you know, in the first half of the 20th century, has given me a kind of oversight of the development of philosophy in that period. The other way in which I guess being a bit of a jack of all trades uh, has contributed to my career is that... I was invited to uh, to become the editor of Mind in 2005, and I, I edited the journal for 10 years until 2015. And, and so looking at papers that come in from all sorts of areas of philosophy you know, was, was challenging, but at least I felt I had the resources in most areas of philosophy, not all, but in most areas of philosophy, to have some view of, of my own about what was a really interesting contribution to the field and what, for all its merits, actually largely repeated lines of work that were already out there. Well, I can't resist another G.E. Moore anecdote. Though you Maybe you'll have a, an insight into this one. This is about, I think when Moore was, maybe when he was editor of Mind, in any case, it's about Mind, but it's from that Paul Levy book about Moore. But there's a quote that in his diary, Moore, once, Moore writes on one occasion, feel incapable of thinking, so read Mind. <laughs> So having talked a bit about the sort of range of your interest in philosophy, I'm going to ask a second question about your relationship to philosophy. This is number two. Do you really believe your philosophical views? Okay, I thought about this quite a bit. I mean, it strikes me that a great deal of philosophical debate starts from tensions or uh, not necessarily conflicts, but the sense that 
our ordinary beliefs don't altogether fit together. And then philosophical work consists in trying to overcome these difficulties. So, you know, here's a familiar, very famous, but 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 I think very perplexing example. Take Paul Benassareff's famous paper on mathematical truth. So, you know, our ordinary beliefs and practices involve calculating with numbers, differentiating, and all the rest. And then we ask ourselves, well, you know, what earth is going on here? And we have other beliefs about the kinds of things that we could have knowledge of. And these don't seem to fit readily alongside our everyday, mundane, unquestioning use of mathematical techniques. And it seems to me that philosophy of mathematics, in a sense, takes off from something like Benassaret's problematic, his challenge, really. I mean, my own preference then is to, I'm largely, uh, if you like, a disciple of Stuart Shapiro. I, I think of mathematics as being basically a matter of mathematical structures. Now, do I believe that? Well, I certainly don't believe it as strongly as I believe the, the mathematical, arithmetical law, whatever it might be, and analytic techniques of mathematics. But for me, it's the best way of making things hang together. Maybe other people can do it better, but then, and then I'll shift my beliefs. So I think you know, it's, it's very important that philosophy remain, in a sense, speculative, but nonetheless, with the, the sort of teleology of arriving, if not at the truth, if I'm not sure that that makes much sense in this context, but at any rate, the best supported, the best warranted system of belief. Often what comes into play here is something like an appeal to common sense. And there's a very nice passage which I just looked up here. It's, uh, it's in David Lewis, where he's uh, addressing the incredulous gaze concerning his version of modal realism. And David writes as follows. Common sense has no absolute authority in philosophy. It's not that the folk know in their blood what the highfalutin philosophers may forget. And it's not that common sense speaks with the voice of some infallible faculty of intuition. It's just that theoretical conservatism is the only sensible policy for theorists of limited powers. Part of this conservatism is reluctance to accept theories that fly in the face of common sense, but then it's a matter of balance and judgment. And I think David put very well there, both in a sense the constraint, if you like, that the requirement of believability places on philosophy, but the thought that it's a constraint that you need to be happy to set aside if you can't see anything better. So I think at this point, I'm going to switch the order of the questions that I had mentioned to you and ask you about the origins of your sort of approach to philosophy and your way of thinking about philosophy. And this is uh, the question, who was your most inspiring teacher? Oh, right. Well, I, I was fortunate um, at Cambridge. My very first teacher of philosophy was Simon Blackburn. He was then a postgraduate student. I was a first-year naive undergraduate. And Simon was very friendly, and we've remained friends ever since. But he passed me on to... Casimir Louis. Casimir was, you know, a Polish emigre who'd come to Cambridge to work with Moore and Wittgenstein, and he was famous for a kind of analytical rigor. But then 
when I was a PhD student, I moved from Casimir to Timothy Smiley. And Tim was just wonderful as a PhD supervisor. And I, insofar as I've supervised PhD students, I've always tried to, in a sense, remember what it was about him that made him such an excellent supervisor for me. He, he encouraged me to develop my own thoughts, but equally, he all the time pointed out that they weren't quite finished pieces of work, that there were obvious objections. But, he, you know, he didn't make the objections insuperable. He just steered me towards much better versions of what he pretended were still my own thoughts. He'd also been very uh, inspiring, perhaps not quite the right word. I went to his lectures on logical theory. They were more or less prescribed. I was stimulated by them. I didn't realize how, actually, how brilliant they were at the time, because he had an extraordinarily, in a sense, modest way of almost apologetically introducing the material and in, in putting his own thoughts into them. And it's only, it was then only in retrospect that I realized that he was presenting material to us which was way ahead of much of this settled debate about questions of, I don't know, the foundations of logic and philosophy of language. So I remember him discussing, and this is all before Kripke, naming a necessity, you know, that, that Quine's arguments about necessity were not altogether persuasive, and maybe, you know, there could be empirical necessities. Or again, and I think there is, uh, Jonathan Lear has, has evidence for this, he, he, he was floating ideas about using the notion of possible worlds or something like that to make sense of modal logic long before Kripke or indeed others, um, Stanger, were doing it. Well, it's great to talk about Tim Smiley because I think he's someone who really loomed very large in Cambridge, you know, when I was there, but isn't as well known elsewhere. So thank you for that. I'm going to ask you a question now about not living influences, but question four, which is if you could go back in time and meet a past philosopher, who would it be and why? Okay, I thought about this quite a bit. So one thing I've I've done over the course of my career is I've lectured to first-year students about Plato, sometimes about the Mino, sometimes about the Republic. And I, I, I do that because I think both of these are works of tremendous insight and genius, and there's lots and lots of material there just to go on and on thinking about long term. So it'd be fun in a way <laughs> to to think of going back to Plato and chatting to him. But then I thought, no, really, I, I'm not a Plato scholar. And I think, you know, to to be able really to have a productive conversation with Plato, one would need to know much more about his work than I do. You might say, well, why why don't you think of going to meet more. Yeah. Well, the answer with more is that I think I do know him pretty much what he thought too closely. And when pushed sometimes by his, his critics or indeed his friends, I don't think he responds always in a way that's very intelligent. Uh, so I, I fear that I would find the meeting more a bit disappointing. But the person whose work I haven't written much about is... John Rawls. 
So I, for many years, I taught a course on political philosophy at York. Yeah. Um, and not surprisingly, uh, theory of justice was a central constituent of that course. And I, I came to think that Rawls was a really extraordinary, extraordinarily original and creative philosopher of the second half of the, of the 20th century. And so I think I could have a sort of productive discussion with him, not exactly challenging him, but asking him to, to elucidate a bit further why he says some of the things he does. So uh, I want to discuss with him this notion of pure procedural justice. Yeah. He introduces that in his early papers, and he emphasizes there that pure procedural justice uh, has a sort of actuality requirement. I mean, his example of it is that if you if you get caught up in gaming and you make bets, then that that procedure commits you to paying your debts or perhaps collecting your winnings, but only where you actually made the bets. Hypothetical bets don't give rise to actual wins or losses. So the notion of pure procedural justice has this actuality requirement, but yet it's the model that he uses in the theory of justice for the original position, veil of ignorance argument. So how is it, but that's hypothetical, how is it that we can use that as the basis for an account of uh, the requirements of justice whose starting point is not some actual commitment we've made, but some hypothetical thought experiment. And then that issue transfers across to his Kantian constructivism, which is a sort of generalization of the application of pure procedural justice then to you know, social moral thought in general. That's the issue that I would want to push him on a bit. And I'm sure he has lots of things to say about it, but uh, they sort of said... In, in his published writings, they're put into footnotes or sort of enigmatic paragraphs. It's not, it's not an issue that he, to my knowledge, actually clearly addressed head on. The early paper, Two Concepts of Rules, where he's in effect leaning very hard on the distinction between hypothetical rule utilitarianism and the significance of actual practices probably fits in here also, because although he was there exploring utilitarianism just for the sake of argument, it's somehow in the backdrop of what he then goes on to do in Theory of Justice. Um, right. Yeah, I'm sure that's right. I mean, yeah. I just put a footnote here. Yeah. Another of my areas of interest with rules is how far those early papers, including, as you say, the concept of rules, in a sense, are rightly connected with a sort of readings of Wittgenstein. Yeah. So he's at Cornell when he publishes, writes and publishes those papers. It's the Cornell of Max Black and, and others, Norman Malcolm. So, and he does allude enigmatically at various points to Wittgenstein. So I, I would just like to, to, you know, to talk through with Rawls in the sense, yeah. what notion of a practice is in play in all of those papers? That would be really interesting. Yeah. So instead of doing that right now, or speculating about that right now, yeah. since time is getting short, I'm going right. to move us on to question five, which is the other Murdoch-inspired question, again, beginning with a quote. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher, she wrote, what is he afraid of? So what are you afraid of? 
I think there are two two fears. I mean, at least in respect of you know, my work as uh, writing and thinking about philosophy, I think one fear is the fear of being boring. The other fear is the fear of being unpersuasive. And I can think of papers I've published which have both those <laughs> faults. Uh <-huh. laughs> um, and so I, I think that I think that, that that's a fear which can almost be inhibiting because you can start out writing something and then you can find that it just looks as though it's going to get you by a slightly different route, perhaps to a conclusion that's you know largely familiar, or you can suddenly see halfway through that, that the line of thought is, is actually unpersuasive. There's an objection to it that you're not going to be able to handle. So I have found in the last, I don't know, five or six years that my productivity has slightly gone down. When I was younger, I guess I wrote too much. Now I fear that because of these, um, these anxieties about being, as I say, unpersuasive or just boring, I'm writing rather less, though I hope perhaps at a higher standard than I did before. Just going back to Iris Murdoch for a second, yeah. I do have one project which overlaps in a way with her. For many years, I've been trying to write a book about Sartre's philosophy. Yeah. And she, of course, did write a book about Sartre's philosophy, a, mm -hmm. a rather short and I think somewhat unsatisfactory book. I'm trying to write a, a, a book which both does justice to the, I think, the intriguing, sometimes unpersuasive, but generally very interesting explorations in Sartre's philosophy. But boy, you know, the anxiety about either being unpersuasive or being boring keeps, <laughs> certainly prevents me from writing it too quickly. Well, we will look forward to its arrival when it does arrive. It's been really great, uh, Tom, to have you on the podcast. Okay, Karen, well, very nice to, to make contact with you again. And I hope that uh, we can renew contact in other contexts later. That would be great. Thank you. That was Tom Baldwin. He's Professor of Philosophy Emeritus at the University of York and the author and editor of many books and essays, including Contemporary Philosophy, Philosophy in English Since 1945, and the wonderful volume on G.E. Moore in the Arguments of the Philosophers series. Thanks for listening to Five Questions. Five Questions.